0: Our message this week, uh, coming from Genesis, Genesis chapter 9, and more than just the Bible, we're going to be looking at a lot of the flood of evidence, right? So Noah and the flood of evidence, because there is literally a flood of evidence supporting the flood account written as it's written in the Bible. There is much, much more evidence uh, in support of the flood account than there is regarding evolutionary theory. And so last week we went over the Bible and what the Bible said in, in uh, Genesis 9 and other chapters there along that line regarding the the flood and some applications for our lives today. And I told you that we'd be looking at modern evidence of the flood. that took place about 4,300 years ago that we can still see this evidence today. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. So here's a picture of Barbara, and she's standing and pointing with her finger there to what is seen on your right hand side her hand next to a dinosaur footprint so there were dinosaurs right and so that's one of the things we're going to be looking at tonight uh about the dinosaurs and and uh, what happened to them and so uh, we do have um, fossil records regarding them and uh, the footprints still and bones and stuff like that so we're looking at some of that now, if I was to ask you, uh, or you would ask anyone, what was it that caused the flood? What caused the flood? Corruption. Uh, well, sin, corruption, yes. But what is it that flooded the earth? What caused the flood of the earth? Water from within the earth water from the earth. right, so rain, 40 days and 40 nights, but more than that, water from within the earth and that is key and so again a survey question go ask the next 100 people you see what was it that caused uh the earth to flood according to the bible bible count most people say the, f- the water rained 40 days and 40 nights but more than just the rain 40 days and 40 nights the bible says genesis chapter 7 verse 11 in the 600th year of noah's life in the second month the 17th day of the month on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights so again most people you know most children's stories of the noah's account just talking about the 40 days and 40 uh, nights of rain, which is important and significant, but even more significant of the, what we see today, volcanoes all over the place, underwater, or above ground, and the massive changes in the shape of the, uh, and the contours of the earth today, and petrified stone, all of that has to do with all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. It explains the so-called ice age, And all these mysterious unknowns that the evolutionary theory can't answer is answered. majority of them are answered very simply by all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. That answers the majority of the the unknowns that we see today. So I've uh, researched hours and hours of of video uh, on this topic. And pieced together, just cut a lot of it down so we wouldn't be here for hours and hours, which wouldn't be bad, you know, the several weeks' seminars, something like that. Uh, but I edited it down, took out as much of the, what I consider you know, repeating and fluff as possible, and, uh, and got down to just really the, the main points um, so that it would fit within a regular service time. And so these video, main videos that uh, we'll be looking at from the creation series by Walter Vieth. And I encourage you to watch the whole series. It's really, really good. It gets real in-depth and much more than we're going to be able to cover tonight. And then another series called Young Age of the Earth uh, with uh, Robert Gentry, really brilliant. Uh, Walter Vieth is brilliant, too. Uh, Scientists. Uh, Walter Vieth was a professor, biology professor. He was an evolutionist, believed in it, taught it, trained in it. Until one day, he asked some questions and was shut down for asking questions. And that then said, well, why don't they want to look at these questions? <laughs> and began the journey. And so the young of the earth, young age of the earth, Robert Gentry and Lonnie Mailshchenko will be the main people that we'll be seeing on the screen. So I, I chopped them up. So some of the chops are pretty abrupt, uh, but some are pretty smooth. You won't even notice they were chopped there. But um, okay, so with no further ado...
1: The Bible speaks of the fountains of the great deep breaking up. A strong reference to volcanic eruptions in the pre-flood ocean basins.
2: This is significant because ocean survey researchers recently found an area on the Pacific Ocean floor thickly concentrated with over 1,000 volcanoes. The size of this area is approximately the same as Washington state. Additional ocean floor surveys may well yield many more such discoveries. The likelihood of extensive volcanic activity during the biblical flood leads us to consider one of the most famous volcanic eruptions in modern time. On May 18, 1980, a giant landslide on the north face of Mount St. Helens in Washington State accompanied an explosion equivalent to 20 million tons of TNT. This lateral blast of superheated steam, volcanic ash, and dirt leveled over 150 square miles of forest, snapping huge Douglas firs like toothpicks. The landslide debris plunged into Spirit Lake, causing a colossal water wave which washed over the adjacent mountainside over 800 feet above its pre-eruption water level. An average thickness of 300 feet of new sediment dumped into the lake has caused its surface level to be almost 250 feet higher than before the eruption. A massive number of trees felled by the blast were washed into Spirit Lake by the giant waterway. The power of catastrophically driven water to accumulate and bury extensive amounts of vegetation can easily be seen here. The floating log mat on Spirit Lake is only about half its original size because the rest of the logs have sunk to the bottom. If Mount St. Helens had erupted underwater, huge tidal waves hundreds of times larger than the Spirit Lake water wave would have caused the erupted material to be carried over much of the earth before settling. If thousands of these volcanoes were active, we can begin to imagine the destructive effects a worldwide flood would have had on the topography of the Earth's surface. Not far from this coastal area near Flat Rocks Point is an object of extreme geological interest, an ancient tree. The fossilized remains of this tree can be seen extending through over 12 feet of sedimentary layers between two coal seams located here years ago when a mining company excavated the layers exposing the tree the bottom of the tree could be seen extending down to the lower coal seam since that time the lower part of the tree has broken off even now in its reduced length the tree extends through layers geologists normally theorize to have taken hundreds of thousands of years to accumulate But these layers could not have taken long ages to accumulate because the tree would have rotted long before the sediments would have had time to accumulate around it. Rather, this tree is mute testimony to its catastrophic burial by at least two sequences of volcanic ash deposits. As the evidence indicates, the tree was probably buried in a series of closely spaced volcanic ash flows perhaps similar to the catastrophic burial of thousands of trees at Mount St. Helens in Washington State.
3: This is what a petrified tree looks like. That's a tree that has turned to stone. Now in some areas of the world you have some amazing features like if you go to Yellowstone National Park for example if you go to Mount Hornidae over there you will find one layer Of petrified forests, one on top of the other. And these trees are standing there in the upright position. Now science has always taught that these trees stand like that because they grew there in the past. So this tells us that there were long periods of stability, so there could not have been a universal flood. In fact, these petrified trees were used to ridicule the model of a universal flood. So they look, literally stand there. They are huge. They look as if they grew there forever. But did they? The only difference between them and modern trees is they are stone, solid stone. And you have these layers. Interestingly, the layers are flat, one on top of the other. Now, here's some interesting features. Here is one that stretches through more than one layer. But if you look at it, there are some f- interesting phenomena. Number one, are no roots. The roots are ripped off. Number two, there's no bark, and if you look on the sides, they don't have any branches. Now what science is saying is that these forests grew there, then there was an eruption of a volcano, ash came down and buried the forest. And then a new forest grew, and then there was an eruption and buried the forest. And then a new forest grew, and then there was an eruption and it buried the forest 40 45 times after each other and now you have all these layers over 40 layers of forests but they're all flat, which is very strange and some of them have upright trees and they have horizontal trees in them now we're looking at these trees if you dig them up there you can see there's a flat one and here are a whole lot of horizontal ones. There's one, there's one, there's one, there's one lying over there. And the interesting thing is they're all facing in the same direction. And This is weird. Did the trees then in the past always fall over in the same direction? So what you do is you measure it. So they went to all the various layers and found, well in this layer it's in that direction and in the next one in that direction and that direction. So these layers of forest orientated according to stream direction. If you take a modern forest you don't pick up those patterns at all. So what happened? Something must have changed. Well this is what it looks like today. Here are two layers which can be explained by science as constituting the forest floor. So when everything gets covered at the bottom you have the forest floor. But this is very interesting because there are two forest floors just a hand's breadth apart. Are these two forests that were just a hand's breadth apart? That doesn't make much sense. Secondly, when you take this to the lab and you grind it down and you have a look, then you'll see that the material in it is water sorted. Ha! So did these forests form underwater? Because if you pick up a forest floor today, everything is jumbled up. A twig, a leaf, a twig, leaf, a leaf, twig, a leaf, needles, pines, everything mixed up. But not here. Here it's water sorted. That's another interesting scenario. Here's a tree dug up. Notice that the roots are definitely ripped off. Now, if a forest grew and it got covered and the trees got buried upright, would the roots be ripped off, yes or no? No, doesn't make any sense. Notice the layering that we see over here, and here's another interesting thing, this is a turbidite flame. That's a mud flame, so this must have happened under water. Now, a solution to this problem came when Mount St. Helens erupted. Here we still have a lot of volcanic material and geysers, and this was St. Helens before the eruption. There was this earthquake, and the greatest landslide witnessed by modern man took place, and the top third of the mountain slid away and released huge pressure and the mountain erupted. But notice that the eruption takes place to the north side. The south side is unaffected. So we have two sides of a here. this is amazing stuff. And it explodes with a force of 500 Hiroshima atomic bombs <coughs> and puts enough debris up there to account for one ton of material for every person living on the planet. Cars are slung kilometers across the terrain. Huge trucks were transported kilometers across. And the forests were stripped bare and buried. This is what it looked like before the eruption. And that's what it looked like after the eruption. So this huge mass of material came and crashed into the lakes. Now you can imagine what that did to the water. What would that do if a huge amount of material just (laughs) fell into a lake? Well, it would displace the lake. So there were huge tidal waves just went (laughs) and they just rushed through the area and they cut canyons and they gathered the debris of wood and washed it back into the newly forming lakes as they formed. Here a steam crater that formed. There's a human being standing over there as a scale. So hot material lands in the water, explodes, and forms that crater. Here's a canyon. This canyon formed in seconds when this water rushed through, and this material here was formed during this eruption. So all of this happened within a few minutes. And if they look at the layering, they would imagine that this must have taken millions of years of time, but it happened in a very short time period. Huge trees transported, ripped out, some of them sheared off by the blast as if cut by a blade, and transported many miles in these mudflows in the upright direction. Here's another one, transported upright in a flow direction. Huge quantities gathered in the lakes. This is Spirit Lake. Here are these things gathering. And then very soon, some of these trees started floating upright. Now, here's an interesting story. So they wanted to have a look. So down went the divers. And what did they find at the bottom? Huge quantities of bark. Thick, thick layers of bark. Did you know that some coal seams consist of nothing but bark? inexplicable in a forest situation, impossible to explain. Here it is, the bark settles down underneath, the logs float on the top, the brown coal that I showed you of the largest mine in the world consists of the logs and some of the lower layers consist of nothing but bark. So here these trees float upright. Now what if there was another eruptive cycle and they were buried while they were floating upright And mud buried them from the side. How would they be buried? Upright. So they took a scanner and they measured how many trees there were in this lake, Spirit Lake, floating upright, and they found 19,000 trees. So if we go back to our petrified forests, you see all these layers of forests with upright and horizontal trees in them, and these could have formed rapidly. Now, one interesting thing that they did is they took samples from all across the column and sent it to the lab for analysis. And guess what they found? Each eruptive cycle today has a special chemical fingerprint. You see, as the magma forms under the volcano, it's new material. When it blasts to the top, the chamber at the bottom is empty and has to fill up again and the mountain is quiet until it has built up enough pressure for the next cycle. Now today they know that if those cycles are more than three months apart then the chemistry is different. Well here the chemistry at the bottom and at the top is exactly the same. So this tells us that the whole process couldn't have taken longer than three months. That fits beautifully into the story. We can also see why the trees are orientated, because obviously it happened in water, and even the upright trees are buried in a particular way. Not all trees are perfectly round, so let's say it has a big rootstock on the one side, it'll be orientated in the direction of stream flow. Now, if this was a local phenomenon, just here in the United States, that would be one thing. But it's universal. This is Africa, the petrified forests, exactly the same scenario. They are stream oriented They don't have any branches. They don't have any bark. They're all lying in the direction of stream flow. Their branches are ripped off. The exact same scenario is in Europe, in Australia. Here on your continent, everywhere in the world, you find this. But surely it will take millions of years for that tree to turn into stone. Well, here are the amazing stone bears of Yorkshire. There's a little stream in Yorkshire which is high in silicon, which is what you would expect after a universal flood as well. And they come there and they hang their teddy bears in the water. And the time needed for that teddy bear to turn into solid stone depends on the size of the teddy bear. Larger porous items, large teddy bears, clothing take 6 to 12 months. Non-porous items, such as the top hat of a fireman helmet, can take up to 18 months to be encased in solid stone. A second. If I look at the lakes today, and I look at the wall of the lake, I can see layers of mud. They call them valves, And they say, we can count them. One, two, three, four, five, thousands of valves. So everything is hundreds of thousands of years old. Because they say each one of those layers formed in a year. Well, here's a leaf buried in those valves. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, up to 45 valves. You must agree this is a pretty tough leaf. (laughs) Waiting 45 years to be buried. So these are not year rings at all. These are event rings, a rainstorm, valve. A change in the wind direction, valve. Anything can cause a valve.
1: Earlier we took a piece of wood like this, inserted it in this steel pipe, added some water, and then sealed it up. The next step is to put it in the oven at about 160 degrees centigrade for two weeks. Now we're ready to examine the results of this experiment.
0: as we can see this
4: wood is now darker in color it's also softer a chemical reaction between the steam and the wood under pressure has caused these changes to occur this specimen isn't coal yet but clearly the process of coalification has begun on page 316 of the journal nature March 28 1985 we read the following Winans and his colleagues at Argonne National Laboratory have taken less than one year to prepare a thoroughly characterized synthetic coal. The material they produce is indistinguishable from the real thing by all the techniques so far applied to it, and its synthesis raises many interesting questions in coal chemistry.
1: In 1927, Noel O'Dell discovered marine shelly fossils near the very top of Mount Everest. Mountains rising out of the waters is how the Bible describes the end of the worldwide flood. According to that description, the shells near the top of Mount Everest are no surprise at all. Perhaps the best fossil evidence for the rapid burial of plant and marine life is found in southwestern Wyoming at Fossil Butte National Monument. During the past 100 years, scientists and private collectors have collected thousands of almost perfectly preserved fossils from sites within the monument, especially here at Fossil Butte itself. It's an amazingly diverse collection of fossil turtles, palm fronds, crocodiles, leaves, insects, branches with nuts still intact. There are even fossil stingrays whose skeletons of cartilage are known to disintegrate rapidly proving that burial of all these life forms was indeed quite rapid. But this isn't all. Perhaps the most spectacular evidence of rapid burial of all the fossils within the monument are the billions of the more than 20 kinds of fish. This slab of rock in the monument visitor center, which measures about nine feet by five feet, shows vividly just a few of that number. Amazingly, many of the fish retain not only their entire skeletons, but their teeth, delicate scales, and skin as well. The vast number of fossil fish at Fossil Butte has left evolutionary geologists with a vast unsolved mystery. In two sections entitled Ideal Conditions for Fossil Making and Unsolved Mysteries, the National Park Service's brochure on Fossil Butte reveals the contradictions that result when using an ancient Earth time frame to explain rapid burial. On one hand, it speculates on the existence of a lake, wherein many animals and plants probably died natural deaths. On the other hand, the evidence forces the conclusion that, on several occasions, huge numbers of fish were killed suddenly. The brochure then equates those several occasions to rapid burial by precipitation of calcium carbonate, the primary rock mineral enclosing the fossils, year after year for hundreds of thousands of years. This is a truly incredible scenario, to have such a vast number of fish reproducing within a short time only to be wiped out by succeeding catastrophe a year or so later, and this to be repeated several hundred thousand times. Paleontologists should long ago have seen the fallacy in this scenario, if for no other reason because of the beautifully preserved fossil palm fronds, but very simply palm trees don't grow in water and their fronds are not ripped off by gentle breezes. Only a catastrophe of huge proportions can account for the perfectly preserved fossils at Fossil Butte. The rocks there are, like many in the Grand Canyon, primarily calcium carbonate. They all had a common source, the interaction of volcanic gases with lime thrown up from the basins of the pre-flood seas. This commonality, together with the evidence of rapid deposition and burial, tells us plainly that Fossil Butte and the Grand Canyon originated in the same great event. The catastrophe of the worldwide flood.
3: This is basically what you'll see in the Cretaceous. All these marine organisms, all these shells, and all of this can only happen where? In water. Only happen in water. There's something else that's interesting. There's a layer over here in the uh, Bighorn Basin, where you have the Mesozoic, Paleozoic layers underneath. And then you have a Cenozoic layers on top. That's the young ones. So the boundary we're talking about is over there, on that line over there. That's where you would find chalk, chalk deposits. Now what happens to form chalk? How does chalk form? Well, you see these marine organisms, when they settle down, when they die and the organic material disappears, all that remains, Is this calcium carbonate shell. And that settles down and forms then a white layer. Does it happen today? Yes. Why are our ocean basins not full of chalk? Because the oceans are so deep that as these materials form they dissolve on the way down and nothing hits the bottom. Are you with me? But if you were to go diving in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, under the ocean, where the mountain tops are very high, on top of each of those mountains, under the Atlantic Ocean, on top, you would find a chalk layer. So it looks like you're swimming in the Alps. White-topped mountains. Really great. So how did that happen? You see, the ocean has to be shallow for the chalk to form. So the, the, this ocean that existed had to be a relatively shallow ocean. And how far did it extend? Now, the Cretaceous layer is the one layer that is universal. Now, take note. The Cretaceous layer is the one layer that stretches from continent to continent. And in some areas, it's thick. In other areas, it's less thick. But it is universal, and it covers every single continent. And it's on the same base rock. So my question to you is this. If that layer is universal, it tells us one thing, and that is what? That the whole world must have been underwater at the same time. And if that is a fact, then we can really stop this lecture right now. The deal's done. Then there was a universal flood, and that is so. And by the way, we know that the ocean basins went down slowly. How do we know because there are coral islands in the pacific now coral cannot grow if it's not in contact with light it cannot grow it has to have light so now you find coral islands at the bottom of the pacific what are coral islands doing at the bottom of the pacific dead coral with huge water column above it well it couldn't have started growing down there there's no light down there so what's the only solution The bottom must have been higher and it grew and it settled down too fast for the coral to keep up and it died. In other areas, you have coral going from the bottom to the top, so it must have gone down slow enough for the coral to keep up with the rate of drop. And we've worked out today that with coral growth rate, that is perfectly possible to put it into a short time frame. Now, what happens today when a whale dies Well, he'll get eaten up in the sea and there'll be nothing left of him. But sometimes whales get stranded. What happens to them? This is what happens to a modern whale carcass. What happens is a whale carcass can sink or float or it can reach the shoreline. That's the bottom line. Here you have whale skeletons on the coast. What happens to them? Look at the bones lying around. Very soon they are disarticulated, dispersed, and abraded. So you have pieces lying all over today. That's what happens today. That's what you see. Here you have a carcass lying on the sea, whale well, carcasses on the sea floor of Santa Catalina Basin. Very soon they become disarticulated, the bones fall apart, and then there are pieces missing. And you have scavengers coming, sharks taking a bite, eating this, whatever. And very soon there's nothing left. That's what happens today. But that didn't happen with the fossils. There they are. Look at that. That's a fully whale. That's a fully formed whale. And uh, here you have eight whales in a radius of 50 meters, and that's quite something considering the size of a whale. Huge creature lying there, fully formed. Very strange. And then if we look at some uh, individual specimens, baleen preserved. Shark teeth associated, but no shark tooth marks on the bone. So other animals were buried together with them. Not only the whales. Completely articulated specimen. Upside down, both flippers reserved. This creature was buried, how? Instantly. What buries a whale in the ocean instantly? Does this make any sense? Certainly not today. Here's another one upside down, completely articulated, shark teeth associated, but no shark tooth marks on the bones, one limb missing, buried today. You wouldn't find anything like that today. Bones are well preserved, another specimen, no evidence of invertebrate activity on the bones or in the associated sediment. Well, that wouldn't happen today. If a whale died, the creatures would come and you'd have the scavengers eating all over the place. Nothing. These creatures are just gone, buried. This whale reached the sea floor with the head almost detached. So, if you have a catastrophe and you imagine these things going, stomp, being stomp, flung around with such force that some of them are snapped and buried, that makes sense. Do you know that they find whales in the upright position, buried? Wow. If that was slow sedimentation, there was a patient whale waiting to be covered. <laughs> One little mountain. Mount St. Helens, put so much dust into the atmosphere that the world temperature average dropped by one degree centigrade because it shielded the sun. Krakatua was four times as strong, four times as big as Mount St. Helens, and Krakatua dropped the world average temperature by four degrees centigrade. One volcano. What do you think 80,000 volcanoes going off at the same time would do? Can you imagine it? Can we even imagine it? If you go to Washington State, you have all this lava lying on top, huge districts of lava. You have these great volcanic dikes. Everything's on the top. And uh, there they are, volcanic dikes, great volcanic activity. There was the explosion of one volcano, Mount St. Helens, 500 Hiroshima atomic bombs going off at the same time, that was a Mickey Mouse volcano, tiny compared to the others. Now here is the great ring of fire, where you have all this great volcanic activity, then you have the mid-oceanic ridge in the Atlantic which ends up in Iceland, huge quantities of dust being blown into the air. What would that do in terms of the temperature? Well it would totally shield the Sun for a while, and you would get a massive drop in temperature. And if you have warm oceans, you'd have lots of evaporation and sudden cold, and you would get ice. And glaciers would form and rush and expand across the continents. But all along the coasts, what would you have? Nice, temperate, warm climates. Just like in Scotland, I showed you those lush growths in this icy country where the Gulf Stream is nice and warm. Now what about these creatures? There they are today to be found trapped in ice. Mammoths trapped in ice. What happened? Now you see when the ice is present in the Ice Age and the oceans are warm and there's food in the north and there's food in the south. In England we find reindeer, hippopotami, crocodiles, buried in the same region. Now that's very weird. That's what we call a disharmonious fossil assemblage. Creatures that don't belong together, buried together. But if you imagine this cold period, pulling the animals further south, so the cold adapted ones like the reindeer, and along the ocean, still warm, Then you could get this all together that seems to make sense now when you dig these creatures out of the ice they are today still very much intact and you can dig them out and some of the meat is still edible like this creature over there totally edible so when did they live if the meat is still edible how old are they millions of years how long can you keep your meat in a freezer they say, a yeah, then you should throw it out. Well, dogs can eat this stuff still.
4: We can see on our planet 17 very strange features that can now be systematically explained as a result of a cataclysmic global flood whose waters erupted from subterranean chambers with an energy release exceeding the explosion of 10 billion hydrogen bombs. This explanation shows us just how rapidly major mountains formed. It explains the coal and oil deposits, rapid continental drift, why ocean floors have huge trenches and hundreds of canyons and volcanoes. It explains the formation of the layered strata and most of the fossil record, the so-called ice ages, and major land canyons, especially the Grand Canyon the pre-flood earth probably had one very large supercontinent containing lush vegetation seas rivers and minor mountains according to the hydroplate theory the pre-flood earth had a lot of subterranean water about half of what is now in our oceans this water was in interconnected chambers forming a thin spherical shell about half a mile thick perhaps 10 miles below the Earth's surface. Increasing pressure in the subterranean water chamber stretched the overlying crust just as a balloon stretches when the pressure inside increases. Failure in the crust began with a microscopic crack which grew in both directions at about three miles per second. The crack, following the path of least resistance, encircled the globe in about two hours. As the crack raced around the earth, the overlying crust opened up like a rip in a tightly stretched cloth. The subterranean water was under extreme pressure because of the weight of the 10 miles of rock pressing down on it. So the water exploded violently out of the rupture. Calculations show that all along this globe-encircling crack, fountains of water jetted supersonically over 20 miles into the atmosphere. The spray from this enormous fountain produced torrential rains such as the earth has never experienced before or after. The Bible states that all the fountains of the great deep burst open on one day. And it describes these events about four and a half thousand years ago. Which we can now tie together scientifically in cause and effect order as the hydroplate theory. The fountains of the Great Deep and the expanding steam produced violent winds. Some of the water jetting high above the cold stratosphere froze into supercooled ice crystals and produced some massive ice dumps, burying, suffocating, and instantly freezing many animals. The high pressure fountains eroded rock on both sides of the crack and even threw up the limey contents of many pre-flood seas. Huge volumes of sediments settled out of this muddy water all over the earth. These sediments trapped and buried plants and animals forming the fossil record. The flooding uprooted vegetation moving it to regions where it accumulated and quickly became coal and oil by processes we can duplicate in the laboratory today. Experiments show that as erosion widened the rupture, its width became so great that the compressed rock beneath the subterranean chamber sprung upward, giving birth to the mid-oceanic ridge that wraps around the earth like the seam of a baseball. The continental plates, the hydroplates, still with lubricating water beneath them, slid downhill away from the rising Mid-Atlantic Ridge. After the massive, slowly accelerating continental plates reached speeds of about 45 miles an hour, they ran into resistances, compressed, crushed, thickened, and buckled. The portions of the hydroplates that buckled up formed mountains. Those that buckled down formed ocean trenches. This is why these features are generally parallel to the oceanic ridges from which they slid. The hydroplates in sliding away from the oceanic ridges opened up very deep ocean basins into which the floodwaters retreated. Every continental basin was naturally left rimful of water producing many post-flood lakes. Each lake that grew from rainfall or drainage from higher elevations spilled over its rim at the lowest point of the rim. That eroded a little notch in the rim, allowing even more water to flow through the notch faster, cutting the soft flood-deposited sediments even deeper. This process accelerated until all the lake's water dumped through a very deep slit, forming a canyon. The largest of these was the Grand Canyon. North and east of the Grand Canyon was a huge lake that I have identified and named Grand Lake. Its dumping released more water than is in all five of the Great Lakes combined. Grand Lake spilled over its rim, eroded its dam, 20 miles south of Page, Arizona, catastrophically forming the Grand Canyon within a few weeks.
2: Rapid deposition of flood deposits from tidal action means there was little time for erosion to occur between successive layers. On the long time scale envisioned by evolutionary theory, there should be considerable evidence found of erosion and infilling by successive geologic formations during the weathering expected over millions of years. The geological layers of the Grand Canyon are remarkable in showing little or no evidence of erosion between different layers. Instead, we see pancake layering very much consistent with the rapid deposition envisioned by the flood model. Erosion did not occur until all of the layers had been deposited. But how rapidly could the canyon itself have eroded?
1: Freshly laid down sediments would still not have completely hardened into rock which allows the possibility that erosion of the canyon could have taken place far more easily than if it had hardened into rock as evolutionary theory has assumed
2: however under the right conditions water can rapidly cut its way through the hardest of rocks such as the granites at the bottom of the grand canyon those conditions involve cavitation
1: Cavitation is the rock pulverizing process associated with water flows greater than 100 feet per second. As water detaches from irregularities in the bedrock channel, vacuum bubbles are produced, inflicting hammer-like blows on the bedrock surface, literally converting the rocks into powder.
2: A modern example of rapid erosion of bedrock from cavitation comes from Glen Canyon Dam on the Colorado River just above the Grand Canyon. Excessive snowfall from the high country of the upper Colorado River basin in late spring of 1983 caused excessive runoff that poured into Lake Powell at rates of up to 148,000 cubic feet per second. This rapid inflow threatened to overflow Glen Canyon Dam. To control the high flow rates, the power plant was run at full capacity, releasing 28,000 cubic feet per second through the turbines. Then the outlet tubes were opened to drain another 17,000 cubic feet per second. This was still not enough. The emergency situation required engineers to risk damage to the spillway tunnel. And on June 15, the 40-foot diameter left spillway tunnel was opened to drain an additional 13,000 cubic feet per second, which was then raised to 17,000 cubic feet per second. Then on June 28, the flow was increased to 32,000 cubic feet per second. At this point, the water exiting the tunnel became red, and noticeable ground vibrations, earthquakes, were felt by engineers. Large blocks of concrete and bedrock came hurling from the 40-foot diameter tunnel. After closing the spillway tunnel, the survey team discovered extensive cavitation damage the three-foot-thick steel-reinforced concrete lining of the tunnel was penetrated by huge pits. At an elbow where the tunnel levels out a hole 32 feet deep, 150 feet long, and 40 feet wide was cut through the lining into red sandstone bedrock. This hole required 63,000 cubic feet of concrete to fill. The repair process to the enormous hole shows the vast extent of the damage. The speed of erosion in the Glen Canyon Dam Spillway Tunnel occurred very rapidly during the period when the red color of water appeared, and ground vibrations were generated. It is possible that cavitation was pulverizing concrete, steel, and sandstone at the rate of 1,000 cubic feet per second during the peak period of erosion. The destructive effects of cavitation at Glen Canyon Dam tell us the Grand Canyon could have been eroded very quickly by the sudden release of a huge volume of water above the canyon.
1: Not everything was buried on the first day of the flood. The waters were rising for 40 days. Land animals large enough to survive part of that period left a remarkable record of their efforts to escape the flood's rising waters. That record is found in coal And it is truly fascinating. Dinosaur tracks in coal, amazing, extraordinary. How in the world did they ever get there? Obviously, in the past, there was a huge seam of vegetation in this area. Dinosaurs were walking around on top of that vegetation before it turned to coal. But how long ago was that? How old are the dinosaurs? That's what we want to know. This other dinosaur track tells the story. It's right adjacent to one of these coalified logs here in this coal mine in Price, Utah. In fact, it's only about a hundred feet away from the coalified log that we saw earlier. So we know that whatever the age of the coalified wood, the dinosaurs were of the same age. Different sizes. Some flesh-eating dinosaurs, some plant-eating dinosaurs. Why were they all together? To answer that question, let's look at the Kenilworth Mine fossil map it says there are at least eight different track types within 100 meters on the mine's roof surface over here on the map itself here we can see all the tracks and the qualified logs according to the sign those dinosaurs were tromping around in a swamp common sense tells you that can't be true there's no swamp in the world that will preserve such tracks all those dinosaurs were together for a reason they were trying to escape the rising waters of a worldwide flood these charts help illustrate how dinosaur tracks could have formed at the time of the flood and why they exist in cold today the pre-flood earth was covered with lush vegetation a scene of beauty everywhere then came the flood torrential rain and the fountains of the great deep bursting open caused earth's lush vegetation to be swept up in the floods rising waters this vegetation accumulated in great mats and then was deposited by the ebb and flow of tidal waves produced by volcanic activity in the pre-flood seas. Each tidal action left its deposit of sediment within or over the layer of vegetation. The dinosaurs, being quite heavy, were able to survive many of the early tidal actions as they sought to escape the rising waters of the flood. When the tidal waters briefly receded, the dinosaurs continued their search for higher ground leaving their tracks in the sediments that were freshly deposited over the vegetation. At times their great weight caused their tracks to penetrate the sedimentary layer into the mat of vegetation. That mat of vegetation has since turned into coal. And wherever the dinosaurs left their original imprints, there we still find an indelible record of their tracks in coal
3: today. And these creatures were probably no different to the lizards and the creatures that we have today. Just bigger. Everything was bigger we find dinosaur eggs yes and then we have museum depicting them in their little nests breeding out pretending that everything is very normal and we can find the eggs yes but how do we find these eggs in the fossil record they are all washed into great washes they've all been buried in catastrophic flood deposits there is no such thing out there as a natural setting that would pretend to be anything like it is today. Dinosaur footprints all over the place. If you look at the way in which the impression was made, then it appears that in the past the animals all walked uphill because most of the footprints seem to go upgrade. You can't look at the topography today, you have to look at what it was like because there could have been uplift and downlift. So when these animals made the impressions, they were making impressions in mud, and they all appear to be running uphill. Why would animals always run uphill? What makes animals go uphill? Maybe rising floodwaters, is that a possibility? Look at the size of this shark. That's a fossil, and that's a modern shark. Nothing like it exists today. This is humongous, and that's a tooth. Of one of these fossils. It's enormous. There is no such thing that exists today. The frightening great white is fiddlesticks compared to that guy. Really, fiddlesticks. Now imagine these creatures, these wonderful iguanas. Give them a thousand years to grow, how big would they be? Wow, you'd probably fill the room with them. That would be scary, or would it? What do these creatures eat? Vicious dinosaurs? Well, if a scientist dug them up, that's what he would say. They would depict them in the museums full of blood, right? What do they eat? Seaweed, that's what they eat. That's what they eat. Nobody would ever guess. That's what they eat. Gila monsters, armadillos, opossums, crocodiles, exactly like they look today. That's what they looked like in the past. No change. None whatsoever. And we think crocodiles are big. Do you know what? Crocodiles that live today are toys compared to what existed in the past. you want to see the difference? I'll show you the difference. Look at these huge creatures like armadillos. There is a fossil crocodile and there is a fully grown modern crocodile. No difference in the anatomy. So there's no evolution here. There's only one big difference and that is what? This guy is just enormous. He is so huge, you cannot even imagine him. If you came up across this crocodile, you would know that you had seen a crocodile. (laughs) It is scary. Now, why is it so big? Why is it so big? Is that evolution? What does evolution teach? You go from what to what? Small to large. But that's not what we have. We go from giant to dinky toy. I'm aging myself by using dinky toy. They don't exist anymore. Lego toy. All right, there we go. So what has happened? Why is this creature so large? Maybe the circumstances in the past were ideal. There was so much food around. Everything was perfect. Temperatures were perfect. And they had a long time to grow without anybody wiping them off the face of the earth. And there they were. Huge, huge. That's not evolution. We've got devolution. Valvichias are plants that just don't die. They just grow and grow and grow until they are very, very, very old. So we have giant valvichias in Namibia, in the deserts, and they tell us something about how long things have been around. If you go to the oldest trees in the world, the bristlecone pine is famous for it. The oldest ones around, how old well, the oldest velvetia around is between four and 5,000 years old. The oldest bristlecone pine, how old is that? Between four and 5,000 years. Some years ago, they said, ooh, 6,000. But then they realized that they were not dealing accurately with the ring structures. And so today, everybody agrees, four to 5,000 years. That's it. If you go to the Redwood National State Park, what do you find? Giant trees, huge ones. And these are first-generation forests. You see, this tree is amazing because its bark is fireproof. So even if a fire sweeps through the forest, the trees survive. It's a first-generation forest, so there's nothing that was there before. How old are the oldest ones on the planet? Between four and 5,000 years. If you look at the river systems in the world, you have a Mississippi river over here. It comes down and it deposits whatever it deposits in the Gulf of Mexico. And there is no subduction there. The mud is not being taken away. It's all nicely enclosed. So whatever the Mississippi has brought down is where? In the Gulf of Mexico. The same with the Nile. Whatever the Nile has brought down, where is it? in the Mediterranean. And so, if you look at the mouth of the Nile, you'll have a huge delta where all the silt that has come down over the eons has been deposited. Now, they know exactly how much these rivers actually bring down, because people build dams in rivers, and a dam will eventually fill up with silt, and then it's no longer a dam. It gets useless. So, they have to work out whether it's economically feasible to build a dam like that, and the way they do that is they put nets and devices into the water to measure how much material comes down per year and they do this over a number of years to determine how long would it take before the dam is useless. That makes sense, doesn't it? And so they did that with the Nile and then it just takes a satellite picture and you determine, how much has this Nile brought down in its entire lifetime? And you know what? There is no river that's older than between four and five thousand years. It doesn't exist. There is no plant that is older than between four and five thousand years. Just because something is big doesn't make a difference. So what was a mastodon? It was a big elephant. What was a giant bison? It was a big bison. What was a giant wolf? What was a giant wolf? Big deal. There was no evolution there. And here you have a giant wolf, it's called dire wolf. Different animals? No, exactly the same as a modern wolf. The only difference is, it was bigger. So we have to make it something marvelous and different? No. So the environment was obviously warmer, better adapted uh, for rapid growth, and all of these features, and that's what they look like. Here you have the wolf. The wolf has 76 chromosomes. That's more than what we have. And these are the varieties of wolves, and they interbreed readily, so they don't change shape too much, because they interbreed so readily, the various clans. But when you come to the foxes, it's a different kettle of fish. They all look different. And what is more, Some of them have 38 chromosomes, and some have 78 chromosomes, and everything in between. But, if you take one with 38 chromosomes, the chromosomes are very long. If you take one with 78 chromosomes, the chromosomes are very short. So what they did is they checked them out, and they said, Wow, you know what? It's the same information. It's just rearranged. So my question is this. If you look at these creatures, and you look at the wild dogs and the dog races today, here's an Afghan, and a Belgian Shepherd, and a Papillon, there they are. We know that is one species, there's the variety. And these are the wild ones, and these are all different species. But in actual fact, they actually all have the same genes, just slightly differently arranged. It's not new material, it's just rearranged material. So, question, of all these wild dogs and dogs and wolves and coyotes, how many do you think went onto the ark? One pair, one pair, and out of that one pair, all of this variety came into existence. Of all those antelope I mentioned, how many needed to go onto the ark? Well, I tricked you there, <laughs> seven pairs. Why? Because they were clean animals. These are unclean animals. But again, the reduction in number that you need to take on the ark is actually quite incredible.
0: So yeah, so in that short period of time, <laughs> answered a lot of questions here, right? So uh, the water erupting from the inner core, as the Bible says, with all those volcanoes that we have existent today in the, in the ocean, in the Pacific, and in the Atlantic, and on land, uh, thousands of volcanoes that are there today, uh, they would bring water and silt blocking the sun, causing a quick ice age. <laughs> Right, uh, he said, "What Krakatoa? Uh, lower Krakatoa? Whatever. Lower the uh, the uh, temperature, average temperature, four degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Anyone know that? About seven and a half degrees. All right. So one volcano, seven and a half degrees, pretty instantaneously, uh, the average for the world. Right. So if you have thousands of volcanoes going off, the temperature dropping very rapidly. They're all frozen, right? And so there goes your ice age. Uh, uniform chalk layer all around the globe, unexplainable, without a universal flood, as the Bible describes. Quick-forming coal doesn't have to take thousands and thousands of years. They do it in a lab now in a year. And that would explain the fossilization and the footprint still in it quick-forming layers. We saw the leaf and the tree and whale, he mentioned, in these layers that they say take thousands and thousands of years, all very quick. Petrified trees without bark, without roots, and all in stream orientation, as they saw from Mount St. Helen, how that can happen. So it gave us a little picture of what would happen worldwide and many layers they looked at the where the petrified forests were and this one mountain that had all these different layers It seemed that different forest was all just all just one big lake at one time and just it all then mud flowed into there and and buried them all at different layers as different mud flows would come in all one chemistry from top to bottom that they say take thousands and thousands and thousands of years millions of years it's all the same chemistry so it all took place in three months green leaves, active fish. You can see it in the video there, but they have uh, fossils of fish eating other fish. So the mouth is open. Half a fish is in the mouth of the fish. Half of the fish is out, right? So they didn't die and then go to the bottom and fossilize. They were alive and were quickly buried. Like you said, how do you bury a whole whale? <laughs> and it takes a big, huge mud flow into the ocean to bury all those whales at one time. Where all that mud come from, Right? except through blowing up through them in the, the middle of the earth and washing big mud flows and uh, and mammals uh, with active live right so they, they have uh, these these uh, mastodons as he showed with green leaves green uh, grass still in its mouth they uh, have insects that were encapsulated and and, and they extracted uh, Bacteria, live bacteria out of their bellies. Bacteria lives for millions and millions and millions of years? No. A few thousand years, 4,300 years, yes, it can, they can live in, encapsulated in their stomach still. So all quick burial, reindeer, hippopotam- hippopotamuses, and hippos, and, and, uh, and crocodiles all in the same area? What do they do in the same area? Right, Reindeers and crocodiles? Santa would be very surprised at that, right? <laughs> what are they doing here, right? But with, again, the ice age, as they described, the, the, the sun being blocked and the rain coming down and the and the, the, the debris and the water from the volcanoes spreading, the, the water vapors coming up out of the earth and spreading out and freezing the inlands, but the hot ocean water, warm ocean water, keeping the uh, areas along the uh Oceans warm, and so all the animals then would rush to those areas that could survive, that survived and made it, and so you have this mixing of reindeer and crocodiles together, and then dying there uh, as the rain continued and the floods continued. Uh, water capitation, pulverizing rock. Wasn't that amazing? That yes. that uh, uh, dam that was opened up and just in just hours, minutes, really, just pulverizing concrete and steel and bedrock very quickly very quickly so you only millions and millions of years of the river to form the Grand Canyon big lakes open up and just pour out we would make it very easily uh, fossils match what we have today just bigger right so uh, reptiles never stop growing right humans we stop growing right In teen years we stop growing we reach our height and that's it when well, we grow fat, right? But we, but we don't grow bigger, right? Uh, but reptiles, they keep on growing and growing and growing, right? So if you, Adam lived nine hundred and something years, nine hundred thirty something years. But if you had a crocodile that lived a thousand years, how big would it be? Right? You have a, a lizard, lived a thousand years. How big could they get? Right? And they have all the same genes, just like all the variety of the dog species, dogs and wolves and. And uh, foxes and coyotes, all with basically the same genes, just mixed around a different way, coming differently. And you get all these varieties. And so you get these reptiles, and you got the same genes, and you just mix them up differently. And then you got different kinds of dinosaurs, and they just grew, and they just grew very, very big. Right? A lot of them ate. uh, A lot of them ate green plants. And the oldest trees and rivers, four or five thousand years old, right? And so we see that. And so that matches right up with the Bible description, a short age of the earth. And this is important as we uh, look at it, how it applies to our lives as well today. So if you have um, a bit of the mindset of the what you've heard, and again, they keep on telling us that lie everywhere you go, every national park, every school setting, everywhere, any time they get uh, to uh, imagine this, the Millions of years, millions of years, millions of years. They keep throwing that, and you hear it and, hear it, and hear it, and hear it, and after a while, we just begin to believe it. And that's why there's even people who profess to believe in the Bible, but try and mix the two together, the Bible account with some. But it's really impossible to do. The Bible's very clear and very plain. And the archaeological record is very clear and very plain as well. Rightly understood, they match in harmony together try and twist it and put millions of years in there. And the only reason they want to do that is because they want to eliminate God. They don't want God in the equation. They don't want the Bible uh, accountability. And so they take that out, and then they got to throw millions of years into the, so that you can believe that, well, anything can happen in millions and millions of years. But it's a short age of the earth. And so if you've been caught up in that, maybe you've thought of that in the past, and maybe this short video has been convincing to you, and you want to ask God to cleanse your mind, and it's miraculous to do so, wouldn't be just a decision on your part. God's gonna to have to miraculously come in and cleanse out all that garbage that we've heard through schooling and, and everything we've been told to uh, have our minds then come in harmony with the word of God through the short age of the earth and the catastrophic flood. And so if you want God to change your mind on that and change your thinking miraculously as you've seen the evidence, then in the moment we pray, you can ask God to, to again cleanse you of all that past stuff and to bring you into harmony with that. And this is important because the, what we look at and how we think about how the world is and how things were created, and we, if we doubt the Bible, Satan gets us doubting a little area, gets us doubting a few chapters, but it's really all throughout the Bible. Yeshua talked about the flood, Peter talked about the flood. He gets us doubting. It undermines the whole Bible. And so if you've had doubts regarding the Bible account, then again, in a moment when we pray, you can confess that, give that over to God, and ask God to give you uh, faith in his word. And then thirdly, that's really important because as we believe that, we apply that to our lives today. So if we think it took millions and millions of years denying what the Bible says, for God to create us and create the world as we have it today, this slow evolutionary process then we apply that spiritually that it's going to be a slow change process for me to change the habits in my life. And so one day, someday I will stop doing that. Someday, one day I will start doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And we just put it off and put it off and put it off. And we don't believe in the power of God to instantly forgive us our sins and to give us new hearts and to make all things new and to give us victory in the here and now. And that is why really it's important that we understand the Bible's power, the word of God speaks and it is. And then another fourth reason is because it does testify of a judgment. The flood judgment in the past mirrors the fire judgment that will be in the future. And so that's why Satan wants to bury that and nullify that and, and get that out of our minds and get us thinking long periods of time and nothing really changed. So again, if you've been caught up in the evolution, it's understandable after all that we've been uh, lied to, how many times we've been lied to over the, with that long periods of time, it's understandable that it would seep in and hard to uh, break from that. But if that's been your past and you want to be set free from it, let us pray and let God renew our minds with his truth. Let's pray our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, king over all things, creator of this earth and of the entire universe, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for revealing your truth to us. Thank you for giving us the little details necessary for us to be able to see this and understand this. Moses obviously couldn't have thought of that on his own, just making up a story. Put in that phrase, Thank you, Lord, for placing that in his heart and mind, revealing that to him to explain these things to us for today, that the fountains of the deep deep opened up. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word, your accuracy of your word, and the accuracy in that account and the accuracy in your promises to forgive us, to cleanse us, to change us, to live in us, to make new creatures out of us as you restored the earth, restoring us a clean heart in a right mind, in harmony with your word and your truth, in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.